the Transverse Network, this is The Transgender Show, an interview program about self-acceptance and discovery. I'm your host, Emily. This week on the show is Mallory Jenna Robinson, an Afro-Caribbean trans woman and transgender and HIV healthcare advocate in Los Angeles. From 2019 to 2021, Mallory worked with the LGBT Center in Long Beach in their transgender health department, actually helping to spin that department up. Responsible for case management of clients, linkage of care, PrEP and PEP services, STI screening, and HIV testing. While there, she implemented several successful essential programs such as Rack and Roll, a clothes closet. Get ready for all the great puns. This is awesome. Rack and Roll, Snack Shack, a food pantry, and Transport, an essential items delivery service, and such events as Come Out and Pose. Valentrans Day, and the T-Report Red Desk Diaries, a panel for National Transgender HIV Testing Day. Really long list of accomplishments, and that's only about half of it. We'll get into the rest now. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Mallory. Thank you. (laughs) I love you, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. So much to jump into. Um, And my favorite question to really kick things off with, how did you choose your name? Oh my goodness. Okay. You know, it is so rare that I ever get asked that question, but I shared it recently. So um, there was a girl, I was in the fourth grade. She was in the sixth grade. She was a cisgendered black girl and her name was Mallory Gay. (laughs) And I know, right? And and it was spelled with an O and mine is M-A-L-L-E-R-Y. But I remember her coming up to me, Emily, on the playground and she said, I see you, I'm here for you and keep being yourself. And so then fast forward to 2006, when I was thinking of my name, she immediately came up. And then my mom was like, you know what, you should do it with an E just to give it like a little uniqueness. And so that's how Mallory came to be. And then Jenna, my middle name, everyone says I have such a Jenna voice. (laughs) Okay. So I just always like kind of took that on and Robinson has always been my surname. Okay. It's so beautiful that you're able to pay homage and tribute to the person that was essentially your, your first ally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Very good. Thank you, Emily. That's exactly it. Now I know that you, you came out early. I mean, compared to me, most people do, but, um, (laughs) You you uh, came out at 16, correct? Correct. So you're in the middle of high school. What was that like for you? What was the process of coming out? And who did you kind of who did you come out to first? Oh, my goodness. So I can go back as early as 1995. I was five years old. And I remember telling my parents that summer uh, that I was a little girl. And they were so supportive. They allowed me to grow out my hair. I go to school starting kindergarten and the school was like, no, um, your child will come at male presenting. And so I had to, you know, cut my hair and all of that. And then fast forward to about 11 years later in 2006, I just knew once I saw the Tyra Banks show and I actually got to meet her last year, my role model, Isis King. Um, who was just a huge inspiration for just 
you know, a visionary of gender firmness for me, for someone who has pursued gender affirming surgeries. And so all of that was very important for me and my journey. And I just really resonated with her. And so it was really easy for me to tell my very best friend, Carlin, mm-hmm. and his uh, nickname Kay. And I, was, I just confided in him that I, that I, again, felt these feelings from 1995. Mm-hmm. And um, in so many words, he asked me to go and speak to the guidance counselor, who then directed me to connect with my family again. And they were very supportive and I've just been very fortunate to have a supportive family and a supportive high school as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you had some beautiful highlights there at high school. What were some of the things that they, that, um, this, this sounds weird coming out of my mouth, but they, that they allowed you to do, or what were some of the things that, that happened that were super affirming for you during that time? Oh my goodness. So one of the things that I loved was that my high school classmates for our senior prom got me a date for prom. Um, It was this guy, cisgendered white male, and he was homeschooled and him and his girlfriend both were homeschooled and ultimately needed to dates for prom. And so myself and another classmate served as their dates, but I got to actually have that full-on prom experience with him. Like he came and picked me up. Like he met my mom. He got me like a whole like flower. And we took pictures together. It was so beautiful. Like and when I did my whole like senior escort across the aisle, like they called his name and my name. And so it was so beautiful because there were other like you know, like cisgendered girls that they could have actually asked for him to be escorted with, but they asked me. And so I'm always incredibly humble for that. And then of course my high school allowed me to take my senior pictures as female presenting. Um, and I was also allowed to dress as female presenting uh, from 2006 um, throughout my remaining of high school years until 2008 when I graduated. Wow. So that's like two and a half years, basically. Yeah. That's wonderful. Got a question. Well, got a couple questions coming in already. Um, one from Shy, and I'm going to ask it now because it's incredibly pertinent to what we're talking about. Um, okay. Were your parents? What was your your parents' level of response and reaction to that initial school when you when you went to kindergarten that you had to cut your hair and come presenting as a boy? Well, how did they react? You know, they, uh, my parents were teenagers when they had me. So I think they felt very, you know, young black couple really trying to confide into a Southern, you know, very monolithic white school system. They just didn't want to make any trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they just, I think for them, there was what we kind of call that um, black suppression, which is big response becomes like an internal anger. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times it's just, we don't talk about it. Right. But the anger and the frustration is there. And that was pretty much the sentiments um, wow. from that point on until I um, until 2006. And then once I said, I, I will not go in the closet anymore. They said, well, you will not go back in the closet as well. And we stand with you. Wow, that's amazing. So your your family did believe that there, that that race was involved in that? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. You know, again, I I was born and raised in Montgomery, Alabama, and though it has, you know, become more of a predominantly, excuse me, African-American community um, at that time in the early 90s, it was definitely still very much um, heavily, um, you know, Eurocentric and and Caucasian based. So they definitely believe that that played a role in it. And just, of course, I think also just sociodemographics of age and poverty and not really wanted to make trouble in that setting. 
especially with a child who was would have been considered very different. Yeah. When you when you did finally come out in high school, were you in a different state? Um, I was in Montgomery, Alabama still. Okay. This was the George W. Bush era. Again, like I said, this is like five years into 9-11. So there was a lot of, you know, heavy, like encouraging the, the youth to go into the army and fight. And so, you know, I was one of those that was just, that wasn't me. But I was, you know, also at a magnet school. So I had to have a 4.0 or higher GPA to stay at that school. Incredibly amazing high school. Thank you for my experience. And um, so I think also that helped with the type of experience that I had, with the type of classmates that I had as well. So I, I always believe in timing and, and serendipity and fate. And, you know, I don't know what my experience would have been like if I would have been at an, you know, traditional public school. Um, it could have been different, but I know I was at a very safe uh, magnet-based school with, with mm. students who were very open. So you you came out, you come out to... Um to a community to a support system, basically that, you know, everybody is, is behind you, at least, you know, outwardly. When did you first seek to try and find other trans folks to, you know, a community of other trans people that were, you know, had similar experiences and what was your experience there? You know, honestly, Emily, there really was no other trans resource, not until I turned 18, you know, my first exposure to really that, that gender expansive community really stemmed from my first, you know, uh, queer space, queer club, and, you know, seeing the, uh, you know, the performers and uh, some of them identified as trans women. Mm -hmm. And so seeing, you know, their essence, you know, and their beauty and, you know, it was just such um, a state for me of wanting to get to myself in terms of visibility and just where I wanted to to be physically in my in my life and in my journey. So I definitely resonated with them in that regard. But certainly in terms of developing friendships that came more in my college years when I created the first LGBTQ club at Jacksonville University. Um, and it was called um, LGBTQSA. And so we actually had several trans youth who were there along with myself. And it was really great to get to meet them and, and build that community. And we're still friends to this day. Now, you um, you were telling me that, that, you know, one of the things that you talk about about yourself is that you've basically gone through everything as far as surgeries and the full the full trans experience, if you want to, you know, check off everything on the menu there. <laughs> when did you know the extent that you wanted to to go through with all of that? And as you went through your journey, did your goals shift in any way? You know, when I heard of Isis's story of having gender reassignment surgery, gender affirming surgery, for me, that was that, again, additional click of, yes, I want every aspect of how I feel internally to match externally. And it took years, you know, again, I began in 2006, April 28th, um, and I actually did not begin my medical transition until 2011 when I was diagnosed with HIV. 
And so that was what I got linked into ART, antiretroviral care, and then also my HRT. And that began that journey. And then finally, I was able to have my first um, surgery in 2012, which, which was my breast augmentation. Um, and then I had my gender reassignment surgery in Miami, Florida in 2016. Um, I was engaged at the time to my um, now ex-husband. And then I had um, body contouring surgery um, a couple of years ago in 2020. And that includes the tummy tuck and that includes the uh, the butt lift and all of that. So, and I had that done here in Los Angeles. Okay. So those are the three surgeries that I have. And I feel so complete in my journey and in my skin. And and for me, that's that's just what's the most important. So when I truly open my eyes, everything that I've seen inside from the moment I knew who I was now matches everything that I am now and mm-hmm. who I am now. That's beautiful. And I, and I, I don't, mean to put you on the spot here in any way, but I know a big thing in a, a, a big thing that uh, is a major topic in the trans experience is passing culture and the pressure to pass. Now, I think it's so prominent because it's something we all sort of have ingrained. That's that's what our, our goal is just from the start is we just want to blend in as women. For so many of us, it's not it's not a possibility. As someone who works a lot in the in trans healthcare, who has gone through the surgeries and let's 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 put it out there, um, blends in as a woman pretty perfectly. What do you say to some of those those folks out there that that maybe don't have that possibly don't have the money to do the surgeries or or what is is sort of your take on on that passing culture? Oh, you know, it is such a culture. I mean, and and everything that we do from ballroom to, you know, female impersonation, that passing culture is there. And um, it's one of those things that I think it's just the level of saying that you have truly fit in with society, quote unquote, but that is not what is important. And that is one of the things that I've learned, you know, Um, One of the things that I tell people is that I've never had facial feminization surgery, the hormones just naturally, but that also my weight shifted and things of that nature. And so people fit into their skin the way they're supposed to when they're supposed to. And I don't think that whether, you know, you pass or whether you don't makes you any less trans. I think it just makes you any more of a more for me, in my case, more ability to be an ally because I have an opportunity for someone who can then possibly go into these spaces, you know, where maybe passing would be more, you know, acceptable and I can be a voice and continue to say, this is what my community needs as a trans person who just happens to have that passing privilege. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I also try to flip it into different ways that yes, even those who pass, Let's also do our responsibility because sometimes I, I know, I, you know, some of us will do it. We will pass and then we will say it's it's no longer a problem. Yeah. You know, we've, we've done the work. We're, we're going to just go and live our own lives. But no, for me, that's not the case. We must continue to be there for our community, whether we pass or whether we don't, because we all are affected by the violence, the poverty, the unemployment, the lack of education. Well, and, and you know, good. Pulling back on that a little bit, you know, 
if any part of that question was unfair, uh, you did reach that level of self-acceptance and, and all of that before you, you started down the path of surgeries, correct? That's, is that safe oh. to say? Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, I was okay from 2006 to 2011, not having hormones, not having any access to HRT or medical hormones. You know, back in the day, it was, you know, get some of your friends' birth control. Those were kind of the things that you would do. And so um, even then, I still didn't have access to those types of, you know, medical regimens. So it was really just patience and just believing that Mm -hmm. everything would work itself out. And of course, you know, that did come in the response of me becoming HIV positive positive, but also with that, it allowed me to get connected to a primary care who also realized that, um, that I was someone who would, you know, definitely be beneficial from uh, medical treatment. And that was in the form of estrogen. And I haven't looked back ever since. And so for the past 11 years, I'm probably to say that I've been in my medical journey, um, not only with my, you know, hormones, but also with you know, just my antiretroviral medicines. It's been really great to just see myself continue to, to in my sister's name, blossom. <laughs> <laughs> I love the callback. That's great. Uh, so did you have any hurdles or anything from the medical field as you tried, as you started to move into your uh, medical side of your transition or was it fairly smooth for you? You know, I will admit I have had some medical and I'm I actually I'm getting ready to have some revisions done to my gender reassignment surgery here in Los Angeles. So I'm excited about that. I actually uh, had like a similar interview like this with the surgeon who's going to be doing my surgery, Dr. Yuan in Pasadena. And we're talking about like, you know, post-operative health care and the complications and even some of the side effects and things of that nature. Um, I know, for example, when I first had my breast augmentation in 2012, I developed hypertension, high blood pressure. And that has been something that I've just learned to navigate for the past 10 years. And, you know, I've navigated that well. And and um, of course, some people are aware of in 2021 and last year I had developed a pulmonary embolism for my body contouring surgery and um, I had to be on blood thinners for six months, but I continue to thrive and survive and I'm here. But that does not mean I regret going through my surgeries because I am here and I am very proud of where I'm at. And, you know, that's just part of every, you know, certain people's journeys and that's mine. Some people will never experience that and I hope they don't. But for me, that's part of my journey, but it's also part of why I'm still here to talk about it. Hmm. What forms of, of dysphoria did you deal with? And sort of when was the last time that you, you had to deal with that? Has it been a while for you? You know, it never, I think, really goes away. I think you're always wanting to be the best you can be in every way. And so there's always that dysphoria of like, am I where I want to be financially? Am I where I want to be visible um, in terms of, you know, how I look, how I present? All of those things that they come into question as we become adults and older adults. And I'm 32 now. So I'm always a little dysphoric and like, am I where I want to be in my life and my identity in that regard? But definitely I do have my moments where I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling it today, <laughs> you know, and it's just, it's a reality that, you know, I still sit with, but I also know at the end of the day, I am, I know I'm a woman, you know, I know who I am. 
Mm-hmm. So whether I am glammed or whether I have on my silk scarf going to Ralph's, I am a woman. And so whether I'm dysphoric or whether I feel euphoric, you know, I still know at the core of who I am, I am a woman. Mm-hmm. And that never goes away. And that just keeps me going, you know. We talked a bit during Blossom Show about the intersectionality of of having a trans identity as well as having a black identity at the same time. Did you have some uh, some struggles with that where the, where those two different identities kind of clashed? You know, they intersect a lot. You know, I come from a family of, you know, activists. My grandfather, maternal grandfather, uh, is a member of the Black Panther. My paternal grandfather fought in Vietnam. Uh, my maternal grandmother picked cotton in the fields of Tuskegee, Alabama. So I have all of these historical roots. And then I also have four brothers, um, cisgender black males. So you have where a lot of the violence that has happened to trans women, especially trans women of color, <clears throat> have come from cisgender men of color, especially black cisgender men. So, right, so you, I have that there. And then also just being a black trans woman and knowing that the statistics of being in a victim myself and then also the police violence that my brothers can face so there's so many different things when we think about like race and gender and gender identity and how that fits into being from the south being haitian you know all of these things what does that culturally look like and um at the end of the day it goes back to just what i mentioned earlier about just knowing who you are and just knowing the type of people that you have in your life. I know that the type of family that I come from, um, yes, I have four cisgendered male brothers who, you know, some of them may present what would be threatening or gangster or whatever the society may want to term it, Mm -hmm. but they would never put their hands on a trans person ever because they have a sister, you know? And so it's those things that I can sit with and be like, yes, you know, there's all these intersectionalities that affect me as a black trans woman, but I also know the coordinates of who I am and who the people that I love are. And I just know that we represent goodness and kindness and, and that's what we continue to resonate around us. And that's why I'm here with you today. (laughs) I'm tempted to ask a question, but I'm not sure. Ask it. Uh, Come on, girl. Do you have any experience into which identity uh, is is more typically in danger? The cis black male, like especially one who might, as you say, like present a little bit, a little bit tougher, a little bit rougher around the edges versus a, a black trans woman. Oh, you know, they both are endangered species. Mm-hmm. Emily. Let's just be honest. The world would be fine if both killed each other, were killed. So, you know, it's hard to say which one is more impacted. I know, I, I know, and you know, I have a true crime podcast where I talk about this. It is the the blunt truth, and it is one of those things that I have had to in my own nuclear bubble of acceptance in a family that I grew up in, realizing that that is not everyone's experience. Um, and, and, and so it is heartbreaking, but yeah, both are very impactful. Um, and it's just, it's really heartbreaking because I fear for my brothers, you know, I fear for my, you know, you always think of, you see these cases just recently, a case of a black cis man getting murdered 
you know, getting shot. And I'm always just worried for my mother with, you know, my brother, my youngest brother, who's going on 15. And then, you know, my oldest brother, who's going on 33. And so, you know, there's just this wide range of where either of them can be targets. And then, of course, just myself being a Black trans woman and having to worry about that. And so there's so much in. Um, I would say, yeah, we're both endangered species. We're both definitely at the at the top of of the most of the most vulnerable. Yeah, your poor mom. <laughs> mm. And you talk about the, the the strength of the black woman, the black you know black mother, because mm-hmm. yeah, the ancient single mother. So yeah. Hmm. You mentioned when you um, started HRT, that was when you um, were diagnosed positive with HIV. Do you know how you contracted it? Yes. Um, So I was in a monogamous relationship with this this cisgendered guy. He was a friend of one of my brothers. And um, I was, you know, monogamous to him, you know, but we were also, you know, not using any form of protection. And uh, one day, it was around May, early May of 2011, I was 21, I was working on my double bachelors, and I passed out at work. And the next thing I know, I've been rushed to the the emergency room, and then they did some blood work, and I get the results a couple of weeks later to come back to the Montgomery County Health Department. They also tell me that I'm HIV positive. I didn't have to go to the Copeland Care Clinic, which is where I met my lovely doctor, Bat. And he was um, the one who then got me onto my initial um, antiretroviral, which was um, Complera. And then I was on that uh, before it was recalled. And then um, ultimately also got linked into my estrogen or estradiol. Mm-hmm. And I've taken the oral tablets. And ever since then, I have remained undetectable and, and thriving on my hormones. Walk me through what your mental state and my mental process was at that time. Did you have a lot of trust issues with your partner at that time? You know, how did you get through that period? Oh, I was so enraged, Emily. I couldn't believe that someone who I trusted my body to, someone I trusted my heart to, was just so careless. And, you know, and I mean, there was these red flags when you look back at life and you think of like the things that we do and you can kind of see like, oh, I should have saw this because, you know, there was this. And so like, you know, he already had two children by two different women. Um, and so, excuse me, that was just a huge indicator right there that, you know, fidelity was not necessarily maybe on his to-do list, but of course I was a young trans woman, was kind of one of my first really adult relationships. So I thought I knew what I was doing and Mm -hmm. I thought he loved me and I thought by giving him what he wanted, which was, you know, him unprotected inside I thought that's what he wanted and that would make him love me and stay. But it just ultimately um, still led to him, you know, sleeping with other people and then ultimately contracting HIV himself and then passing it to me. And, you know, we didn't really talk much about it. After that, he kind of pulled the typical guy move when they don't want to deal with confrontation. They just get ghosts and they just, you know, skedaddle and you can't get a hold of them. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of that for a few years on and off. And then most recently, last year, he reached out 
And I had heard that he had experienced some, some violence in his life um, that resulted in a shooting, um, him being shot. And so I always thought like, okay, if I had a, you know an opportunity to speak to him, I would want that. So when he reached out, you know, of course, I expressed my sympathies for his for his trauma. But I also wanted to let him know the trauma that he caused me back in 2011. And it was really, you know, powerful, Emily, because, you know, for the first time, I think he really realized that his actions hurt me Mm -hmm. and I had to learn how to navigate a new normal. I had to learn how to reframe myself from looking at this pill as my only way of surviving. And I had to say, this is my multivitamin, mm-hmm. you know? And so again, just trying to continue to keep everything glass half full while going through college and, you know, wanting to pursue a teaching career at that time. It was also important for me to just maintain a type of mentality. As you know, again, it was so easy to look at it as a death sentence, yeah. but I was like, no, I'm not going to look at it that way. I'm going to continue to survive. And I let him know that's exactly what I did, despite never really talking to him about it until most recently. And what did that moment do for you, that chance to finally express how you were hurt and you know what it meant to you? Oh, it felt so good because I felt like, you know, he finally knows that his actions hurt me. I think, you know, it's so easy sometimes when we're young like that, when we're 20, 21, 19, and we can say, oh, we were young and dumb, quote unquote. And I was careless and reckless. And yes, all those things are true. But when it does affect someone else's life in such a way that, you know, it could have led to trigger warning, self-harming. It could have led to so many other things that I could have, as a Black trans woman, feeling like I didn't even have resources or access at Montgomery, Alabama, of all places. Mm -hmm. I could have gave up and gave in, but I didn't. And for me to be able to tell him that, and for him to really receive that because he had to really stay on that phone. He had to really sit there and hear that. And that to me said that he was in a place of really to grow. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was because he had a near death experience of his own. Um, in addition to already being HIV positive, but then I think also just realizing that, you know what, my actions have led to me hurting others and I need to really receive this. And so again, it was a beautiful moment. It was a healing moment. And I am truly in a place of just growth from this. You mentioned um, having an ex-husband that I'm, I'm sure was after that time period. How much yes. did this experience, how much did it damage your trust in others? And how did you repair that find a way to kind of repair that um that that lack of trust in others to to put that faith in someone new you know that's a good question i've always you know seen the the good in people or as my therapist say you know you have these rose colored glasses mallory you know i like to just you know see just a world of you know land of happiness and opportunity and and so despite the hurt that my ex had caused me in 2011 and receiving an HIV diagnosis, I knew it was important for me to make sure that I always communicated that with any partner. 
And so um, I graduated college in 2014 with my double BA in biology and history. And then I moved to Florida where I began teaching middle school science and history, which is where I met my um, now ex-husband. And um, he too was an educator. He was in in the Navy. Um, He just really led me to believe that he accepted my my identity as a black woman, right? Because he was identified as a cis white man. So that was already a place of privilege for him mm-hmm. um, and coming from a family of, of privilege as well. So there was already that kind of social, racial, you know, hierarchy there, but he always really provided that sense of ease into that. It was really beautiful. Um, we got engaged um, in 2016, a couple of months after I had my gender reassignment surgery. He was there with me when I had my gender reassignment surgery in 2015. Um, we navigated sex safely. Um, we got tested. So he always, you know, knew that he was negative and I always made sure that we got tested together regularly. Um, especially as I got to a point in my um, healthcare journey where I was able to go and have my labs done every six months. Um, so we navigated that fairly fine, but then, you know, of course, really the issue became more for our relationship, uh, was once I had my gender reassignment surgery and that was, you know, kind of where you talk about really finding your community as a trans person, because once you become post-op, things are so different for you. And and in so many ways, you are viewed differently. Mm-hmm. And so I think for him being with me when, we, when I was identified as a pre-op woman and then going into a marriage and a relationship with me as a post-op woman, it just proved to have its challenges. Um, And it just became a very unhealthy and toxic relationship. And I decided to choose me. And I ultimately, I realized it was best for me to get out of that relationship. And I filed for divorce in 2019. We got married in 2017 and I filed for divorce in 2019. Mm -hmm. And we were actually legally divorced right before COVID hit. So I was able to get mostly everything done. Um, And I even got to keep my USAA and Navy Federal too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it's all those things. And I did all of that in the middle of teaching my beautiful, amazing youth back in Florida. And uh, yeah, but that was, I'm so thankful for that experience of being able to experience love in that way of being able to get legally married, being proposed to, um, you know, being walked down the aisle by my dad, all of those moments. I still have the photographs. I still am very close to some of my in-laws, including his parents and sisters. So it's still a very beautiful experience. And, and I'm sorry, I I may have missed. And are you are, were you able to maintain a kind of friendly relationship, you and your ex? <laughs> Emily, I love you. Uh, no, unfortunately, okay. we did not. Um, yeah, it, when you know, he, uh, I'm going to be very just very quick. He wanted uh, an open marriage. I did not. Uh, it just wasn't for me. And ultimately, uh, I think that just always rubbed him the wrong way that I chose me and decided to mm-hmm. get out the marriage. And one of the things that he stated and. I tell anyone, don't you ever let anyone say things like this to you because you are worth more. He told me that I was just, you know, um, someone that was just worth sex and not love. And I am here to prove that I, that you are more than that and you're beautiful and worthy of a beautiful life. Never let anyone tell you different. So that was the the toxic aspect. That's about the worst that you can be, um, you know, having someone devalue your, your, your worth. 
<sighs> but now I'm here and I'm, you know, still paying it forward and working with the community. And that's why I said, despite the issues that I've had in my life, you know, getting HIV and not getting that closure at that time. And then the mm-hmm. trauma I went through in my marriage and divorce and moving to LA and getting into advocacy work and all, you know, had to be part of this stepping stone, this greater journey to get me here to be here with you. And again, that's part of where I think about serendipity and fate. I had to go through that to get here. As someone who was just recently trying to kind of start dating and was very timid to enter a cis dating pool because of the, you know, being pre-op, how did you navigate that? What were some of the keys to that? Or did you just present yourself and then have the conversation? And if they weren't cool with it, then, then bye. You know, the latter, I, for me, it was more of, I know for in terms of if the partner and the partner would know that I was pre-op, uh, I wanted to make sure because for me, I was very dysphoric that way. Yeah. Um, I just did not acknowledge my, my genitalia, my frontal. And so it was very important for me to be with a partner sexually who would also disengage with that. So that was always a key aspect for me and just really navigating the type of relationship I would have with a cis male partner mm-hmm. um, just because I know of, of what I would prefer. So that was a huge preference for me, but then also just understanding that I wasn't going to be a fetish mm-hmm. and making sure that that aspect was really that boundary. That's where we as, as people have to say, no, 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 no. You know, I am worthy. I do have value and I choose me. And so, you know, and that takes time. We grow and we learn on that. But those are the ways that I've navigated in those spaces. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that being openly uh, pre-op trans uh, greatly reduced your options for dating? Or were you able to find a decent amount of people to to have, you know, first dates with and kind of that initial interaction to, to get to the point of determining if there's chemistry? Because I, I feel like a lot of times we're timid and we feel like, well, no one's going to accept us. No one's going to want to date us. And so I don't want to put myself out on a dating app trying to look for cis folks because I, you know, that constant rejection, I can't take that. And that's a very common fear and it's a very realistic fear. You know, each of my partners, the partner that I, again, um, who gave me HIV, um, he was a cis male. I knew him through my brother. So he knew me prior to even beginning my gender journey and then after. So we had that prior history when we began dating. And then the partners that I did have serious relationships with them. When I say serious, I mean, like, they got me cars and introduced me to mama and everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Then in the South, honey, you know, every boy taking you to meet mama. So, um, you know, these relationships were, you know, maybe a year or more. Um, and then, of course, my my uh, ex-husband, too, who, who, you know, married me legally and openly. Um, and so... Love exists. You just have to know your boundaries in those relationships, especially as trans folks, especially as gender expansive folks, because when we are already right, seeking to love ourselves, and then we're trying to seek love from someone else, because, you know, one of the things that people always say, the key to happiness is to love and to be loved. So, right. So we know that we have the love to give, but who's going to give it to us? Mm-hmm. So then when we do get that love or what we think it is, right, based on what society has shown us. And some of that can be even what we grew up seeing and that toxicity, toxicity in family structures. 
And so for me, I know for a fact, the fact that my parents weren't together and the fact that, you know, I know that my dad, you know, is a little rough around the edges. You know, he's an old school kind of ice cube 80s, you know, you know, hard knock what you think of. And so I know that was kind of the type of guys that I went for that, you know, whether they were identified as white ethnically or black or Latin. You know, they always kind of had that bad boy edge. And so they would give me that limerence and that lovey-dovey, kissy-kiss, like Chris Brown song. But then within six months, that toxic masculinity where they would want to be, and then they would want to remind you that you're trans. And, you know, and if, of course, if the racial relationship is different, they remind you of your ethnicity. So the power dynamic definitely is always there. And so you just have to remember to be affirmed in who you are and your worth and be like, okay, I am black. I am trans. I am femme but that's not going to give you the right to treat me any kind of way, handle me any kind of way, control me or anything else. Hmm. So with that experience, what is your advice? What was, what was your method for, for remaining safe in dating as a trans person? You know, for me, and again, it's been 16 years, you know, and, you know, to navigate from the age of 16 to now 32, safely. And when I say safely, you know, I have, I have not been a victim of any type of violence um, in that regard. There was one dating incident in 2010, Emily, where I was hanging out with my cousin and she had this guy that she was dating and his friend was there and his friend just, you know, wanted to go and talk. And I just thought we were going to talk. And uh, we went downstairs to, you know, talk in his car. And next thing I know, he gets a phone call and it's his friend who was upstairs, was still upstairs with my cousin and, uh, you know, disclosed that I was trans. And, you know, he was like, oh, I'm driving the car. And, you know, I got it just a little scary. And one of the things he had said to me, you know, he wanted me to, you know, perform a sex act. Um, and he's told me um, that had he had a weapon, a gun, uh, that he would have used it. And that was the only time in terms of that kind of situation um, that I experienced. I did experience dating violence. Um, my very first relationship um, in high school. And so I navigated through that for a year and a half, as well as also in my, in my marriage. So I've learned how to be someone who doesn't allow the abuse, the trauma to take hold of me. Mm -hmm. um, if anything, I've learned how to just become empowered and continue to want to make sure that the community that I serve, which is the entire trans community, has accessibility, visibility, and equity. What was your method for talking about HIV? Mm. You know, it's interesting. That one was always a little more, a little more sensitive for me to, to really disclose. And it was always more so just because, you know, almost with the trans identity, there's still that stigma of HIV. It is just, I mean, and I am learning you know, living here in the West Coast now, the terminology, like, excuse my language, like clean and dirty. Like I had never heard things like that in reference to if someone's positive or negative. And it's heartbreaking to know that these things can be discussed about a community, mm -hmm. our community. And so all of those things sometimes makes you hesitant 
because, you know, people are just, you know, sometimes not kind and they look for reasons to be violent and justifications. And so by not disclosing your gender identity or disclosing your HIV status, all of those things put you in a greater risk of being targeted. And, and, and of course, that factors in and your willingness to disclose, too, you know because of your your fear of being attacked and harmed. But I still always know, especially if it's going to be a, you know, now if it's a, you know, casual partner, safe sex, if it's a lifelong partner, a part, my, you know, at the time I thought it was my permanent person, or, you know, but unfortunately they weren't. But, you know, of course in time we would then, you know, practice, you know, unprotected sex. And of course they knew I was on my medicines and all of that. So it was always, I was always able to navigate those uh, relationships safely, but um, certainly it was always hard to still have those conversations with them. They always thanked me for having them, but it was always still more difficult than disclosing that I was trans. Mm -hmm. How did being HIV positive affect your medical transition? Oh, well, you know, you have to do so many more additional layers and hurdles of medical care. You have to go and have additional blood work done, uh, which states that you're undetectable. You have to get letters from hematologists, and just so many different additional steps that you have to do. But, you know, again, if you're undetectable, it's fairly simple because, you know, your blood work is going to remain the same. It's going to remain undetectable, which is really what most surgeons and primary care physician, uh, physicians and, you know, specialists look for. They just want to know that your blood work and your lab work is undetectable. And so all of that is pivotal and how soon you can have your surgeries, because it, let's say if you get out of care, and then now your, you know, your viral load is, you know, a little high. And so now you're no longer undetectable. Now you have to worry about a potential mutation. Mm-hmm. And um, these are things that are really real. And I know for myself personally, I am not a fan of taking pills. Okay. And they do have like these, you know, new injections um, called Capnuva that they're, you know, opening up to the community and I'm even looking into that myself. But again, it's really about the way that we frame it. Even if you're, you know, someone who doesn't like to take a pill and it can get exhausting, just look at it as taking your multivitamin. Mm-hmm. You know, just look at it as just, you know, make it, it's something that's just keeping you just 100% okay, you know? And so that way there's never any troubles, especially for those who do want to have surgeries, if that's something that you want to proceed with. All of those things are so pivotal in making sure that, you, that your viral load is undetectable. Mm-hmm. So how has being HIV positive and, and your experiences helped and changed your, um, your experience with working with the trans community? I, I'm assuming that it has made you a great asset to a lot of the, the communities and the, the health services around because of that experience. Yes, it really has been such a beautiful way to connect with the community from, again, my experience with the center in Long Beach to working at the AIDS Projects of Los Angeles, um, to also now working as the Community Advisory Board Coordinator at Reconstruct Cities LA. All of these roles, you know, with being a trans woman of color who lives with HIV for now almost 11 years, that lived experience is something that I can speak on. But then navigating through that, because again, like I mentioned, I wasn't always a fan of taking pills. So I certainly had my moments where, you know, I wasn't always the best with care, especially early on. You know, again, when you're younger, you do feel invincible. And when you're told you're undetectable, sometimes it's easy to just be like, okay, I'm okay for a while. I can, I can miss a few. 
But that's where, you know, you have to continue to tell yourself, no, that you're, you're not, that's not the reality. And so, and that comes with maturity, that comes with age and wisdom and just realizing where you want to be in your healthcare journey. But all of that has been so important and just how I have navigated my HIV journey and how I speak about that to the community and how I work along other members who are HIV positive or those who are doing HIV healthcare work and studies. All of it is so important and how it just connects because we're really all here just trying to make sure that every community, you know, is reduced to being exposed to HIV. Well, and, you know, to add back to what you mentioned earlier about how for those who maybe don't have access to healthcare in certain states, um, there's a video on my social media. I created like this whole video about a toolkit. And one of the things that, you know, let's say if you are living in a state like Alabama, where I was born and raised, um, where there's not really a lot of gender affirming healthcare like here in California, then, you know, um, if you don't have access to an electrolysis, right, that facial hair removal process, there's razors that you can use um, that can really help reduce razor bumps. Um, there's at-home regimens, you know, that are really cost-effective, like using facial soft soap, hand soap to lather as opposed to, you know, using shaving gel, using rubbing alcohol as opposed to shaving, um, you know, ointments and creams after you shave. Um, so all of those things are just, you know, things that you can get from the dollar store and really just keep your skin smooth and, and keep you that visibility that way if that's the aesthetic that you're going for. So again, I, I like that. I, so I have that video again talking about ways to still be affirmed in your journey, um, even if you don't necessarily have access to affirming health care. What are the things that you feel you've been able to accomplish because of your transition? Oh, my goodness. Um, anything I put my mind to. You know, the moment I knew I was Mallory Jenner Robinson, I knew how I wanted to express. I knew how I wanted to identify. I knew I always wanted to work with my community. And I knew that my life was going to somehow land in Los Angeles, California. Hmm. It really is about manifesting. Life is what you make it. And despite everything, and Emily, I mean everything I have went through, I was determined to get here to this place. And I always maintained humility, you know, kindness, gratitude, because there were people along the way, though there was, I was shown cruelty. There were people that in the midst of that showed me so much kindness. You know, shout out to you, Mama D. And all of that, you know, impacted my my ability to continue to show kindness and empathy to others and pass it forward. And that's the beauty of life is not letting those hurdles, those traumas bring you down to a place to their level of retribution and revenge and, you know, wanting to just hurt others because, baby, go live your best life because it's out there. Just keep believing in yourself. And have you been, a been able to maintain, maintain, <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, have you been able to maintain that throughout your life or did you go through periods of struggle where you were beaten down and you did have trouble trusting people and you were angry and, and felt defeated? Oh yes. Oh my goodness. Uh, there, you know, just recently I, um, a couple of posts, one um, on TikTok where I just talked about the experience of being black and trans and, um, you know, from being, you know, being seen as fun 
sexually being made fun of, according to certain comedians. Um, and then also just being, you know, seen as that we're fooling people. So I really spoke about that for a minute and it, you know, has over 190,000 views on TikTok because it really resonated with the community on the true hurt that we do experience, whether you're passable or not, whatever that looks like, there's still that element of trauma that goes there. And so there was that. And then just really also just sharing with the community that I was battling depression and anxiety and loneliness, you know, battling those feelings of feeling like, you know, am I am I as successful as I want to be? Am I like, do people like me? You know, all of those things I think we as people do to ourselves. And so, like I tell people, I, you know, pretty much what you see is what you get. Um, if I'm happy, you know, I'm definitely going to always express that and show that. But if I'm not, um, you'll pretty much see that as well. So I'm pretty much an open book when it comes to that. And mm. but I just thank the community, especially our beautiful trans, gender non-binary, gender expensive, intersex community who has just loved on me and just continue to just be there and always uplift me. I am so incredibly thankful. I love you all so much. What is your favorite thing that you've learned on your journey? Either about the world, about yourself? I think one of the things I've learned about the world is that it will continue to bring you surprises and you just have to continue to just go with those surprises, good and or bad, uh, but just continue to go through with it. And then within myself, learning that I'm capable to continue to go through those life surprises, you know, because sometimes, you know, we as people could be like, this is just, you know, too much y'all, <laughs> like for real, today's not the day. But again, being able to say, you know what, I'm resilient, I'm tenacious, um, all of those things continue to just push me forward. And that is one of the things I have learned on my journey is that I am tenacious. <laughs> what is the advice that you have to pass to younger closeted trans folks out there? It's going to be okay. It is going to be okay. I was 16, 2006. Some of you probably weren't even born yet. <laughs> Sure. You know, I'm just like, Lord, I realize I'm getting up there and I'm getting up there too. But, you know, I was that age and that time period where it was, there was no YouTube of, of trans people being visible. It was very few, far between. Don't give up. I knew that this day would come where our community slowly but surely would start to get more visibility and spaces and, and have these beautiful shows like this, thanks to Emily. So do not give up. Know that this is just the beginning to so much better. Continue to believe in yourself. Just know that you have people like myself and Emily and those who are here to love on you and be here for you. Mallory Jenna Robinson, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of your journey and being what you can for the community and for our community here. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you all for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Transgender Show from The Transverse Network. Watch this show live Tuesday nights at twitch.tv slash The Transverse and later on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash The Transverse. Be sure to check out Mallory's show, A Hateful Homicide, wherever you get your podcasts. If you love what we're doing and want to help support The Transverse and get access to exclusive content, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash The Transverse.